something should never change. Something should never change, such as the reason and purpose for which this church was first founded. According to the history of this church, on the 6th of November in 1927, a group of 30 believers met to prayerfully consider the possibility of establishing a gospel witness through a local Baptist church. Colonel Byers generously allowed these brothers and sisters in Christ to meet in a home that he owned, and Pastor E.H. per year began preaching the gospel to them and others who would visit the small but growing body. Three months later, on January 25th, 1928, a small group of brothers and sisters in Christ formally constituted as a church under the name Arlington Baptist Church. It's striking to think that in the dead of winter, in a season in which the vegetation of this earth seems lifeless, that God was breathing life into a new local church. A local church that for the last 85 years has said to all of those who come under the sound of the preaching of the gospel, come to Jesus Christ and have eternal life. For more than 85 years, the stated purpose and aim of the mission and ministry of this local congregation has been to say with those in an earshot of its witness, in the words of 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and life is in His Son. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I stand before you this morning to declare to you that this aim and purpose and ministry and mission of the church should never, ever change. Until the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power and glory to call us home to Him, it should continue to be the purpose and mission of this church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. This should never change. This should never change, not because we want to be set in our ways, but because we want to be faithful to God. This should never change, not because we don't like change or are afraid of change, but because God has given us no other message to proclaim. God has spoken a true and life-giving word to us in Jesus Christ, and we've got nothing else to offer a dead and dying world but Jesus Christ Himself. What we have to offer our neighbors, the, the residents of Arlington County, the people of the state of Virginia, the, the U.S., and God's world is nothing other than the totally truthful and trustworthy testimony that God Himself has given to us. And this testimony is precisely what we're going to think about this morning as we turn to study God's Word to us in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. And if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Turn to 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. And I'll be referring to the, the text and verses a lot, so I think that you'll be helped to have a Bible open and following along. 
And if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, uh, you should be able to find the passage on page 1023. 1023. First John's near the very end of the Bible in the New Testament. If you wanted to start at the back and start flipping your way forward, you might find it there uh, a little faster. And while you're turning there, let me briefly set our study of this passage in its context. The, the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, wrote the letter of 1 John toward the end of his life. He wrote this letter out of his love and care for the church in Ephesus. He spent the latter years of his life well in this sense. His love for the people of God did not wane. And in fact, John even reveals his love and affection for his readers as he identifies them throughout this letter as his dear children in the faith. John wanted these dear children to know and understand the nature of their relationship with God. He wanted them to have a clear picture of what their fellowship with God means and how it can be seen. John has said that you can identify a true Christian by one, their faith in Jesus Christ, and two, their love for one another. The two for John can never be separated in a Christian, even though they can be addressed as distinct subjects. In the passage that we're looking at together today, John focuses attention in on one of the two essential marks of a Christian, specifically a person's faith in Jesus Christ. Or to put it in the language of our passage, his acceptance of God's testimony concerning his Son. In the verses leading up to our passage, John has just said that all who believe that Jesus is the Son of God have overcome, are overcoming, and will overcome the world. And while John's goal is to still reassure his readers of their faith, John turns to stress the validity of the testimony that they have received about Jesus Christ, upon which their faith is founded. It's one thing to believe. It's another to believe and have good reason to believe. John wants to assure his readers that they have good reason to believe in Jesus Christ. So read what John says in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Well, these verses, they divide fairly neatly in half. In the first half, John tells his readers that God has given a totally truthful testimony concerning His Son. And in the second half, John then communicates to his readers that since God has given a totally truthful testimony concerning His Son, we should trust it. So we're going to consider 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12 under two headings. First, the totally truthful testimony. And second, trust the totally truthful testimony. So if you're taking notes this morning, those points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And if you didn't catch those points, not to worry, I'll repeat them as we're moving into each new section. 
So let's turn now and consider our first point. God's totally truthful testimony. And as we do, read 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 9 with me again. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 9. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. So the, the, the big idea, the, the, the main point that John is trying to communicate in these verses is that the testimony that God has given concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, is totally truthful. That's what John is trying to get across. So let's take a look at these verses in more detail to see how John is communicating that point. Now throughout his letter, and even here, John wants to assure his readers that their faith is not unfounded but grounded in the truth. In verses 6 to 9, John continues to explain to his readers why they have good reason to believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation. And John opens up verse 6 by explaining that Jesus Christ came by water and the blood. And we'll get to thinking uh, in a minute about what John means by water and blood. But let's not pass over so quickly that word came. That's a crucial word. It communicates that Jesus' coming was a historical coming. It was a, a real coming. His coming was an entrance into human history. The eternal Son of God, you can see there in chapter 5, verse 5, the eternal Son of God took on flesh to His person and came and entered into human history. He entered into our human experience. He, he knew what it was to be hungry and thirsty. He, he knew what it was to be tired and in need of sleep. He, he knew what it was to be tempted and tried. But praise God, He did not know sin. He was without sin. The eternal Son of God came and took on human flesh so that He could be our suitable, sinless, and sympathetic Savior. Brothers and sisters, let's just pause for a moment and rejoice that Jesus Christ came for us. He came for us, for you, Christian. Now, we know the darkness of our own hearts well enough to know that we're not necessarily easy to love. And yet, He came to display His love for us. And brothers and sisters, let's remember that when Jesus Christ gives us commands, He gives us commands from an understanding vantage point. He speaks to us knowing what it is to be human and to live in this world. He, he knows what it is to do, endure the, the hardships of this life. He, he doesn't give us commands or call us to obedience without understanding what our experience of this life is. He knows exactly what our experience is. And it is out of that wealth of experience and the depth of His love for us that He calls us to follow Him. So John tells us that Jesus Christ came by water and blood. Now when John refers to Jesus coming by water and blood, I think that John means to summarize the whole of Jesus' saving ministry and work. Water and blood are, are a summary statement concerning the whole of Jesus' saving work. What was the reason for Jesus coming into this world? What was the reason that He came? Well, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, we're told the reason for Jesus coming into the world. In 1 John chapter 
4, verses 9 and 10, we read, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that, that's a purpose clause, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus came into this world, sent by the Father, willingly taking that commission. He was sent to save sinners. And this reference to water and blood point to two pivotal moments in His ministry which succinctly summarize and signify His saving work. Water refers to His water baptism at the beginning of His earthly ministry. And blood refers to the shedding of His blood in His cross work at the end of His earthly ministry. And the word and which stands between water and blood, shows that these two realities are inseparably related. They summarize the whole of Jesus' saving work. And these two events don't simply summarize the whole of Jesus' work because they mark the chronological beginning and the rough chronological end of Jesus' earthly ministry. More than that, they summarize the whole of Jesus' ministry because of the significance that was embedded in those events. In Jesus' baptism, in His water baptism, He was commissioned for His ministry. He was commissioned and set apart by the Father to live the righteous life that we have not lived. In His water baptism, He was declared to be God's Son, the truest and most faithful Son of God who has ever lived. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus said to John the Baptist in His water baptism that He needed to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to undergo that water baptism not because He had sinned or done anything wrong, but so that He could identify with sinners and be our suitable, sinless, and sympathetic Savior. Jesus not only had to identify with us in His water baptism, He had to identify Himself as our Savior through the shedding of His blood on the cross for our sins. As Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 reminds us, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We needed Jesus to be our representative. That's what He claimed to be in His water baptism. And we needed our representative to actually represent us. And that's what He did in shedding His blood on the cross. That's the point that John drives home when he says there in the middle of verse 6, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. He actually did represent us and die for our sins on the cross. Jesus didn't simply come to be identified as our representative. More than that, He came to actually represent us in His full humanity before God. The shedding of His blood proved His full humanity. Something that the false teachers that John mentioned in chapter 2 were, were likely teaching against. In the representative shedding of His blood on the cross, He provided the atonement necessary to satisfy God's wrath towards all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. In my place condemned he stood. Christian, in your place condemned he stood so that you and I might be saved. John not only points to these historical events to encourage the faith of his readers, but he also points to the work of the Spirit. You see, this is not only something that John believes and testifies to, but there is another who testifies to this truth too. John says that the Spirit is the one who testifies. And the Spirit is the truth. The work of testifying to the work of Jesus is the unique work of the Spirit. And since He is the Spirit of the one true God, He is the Spirit of truth. We learn this from John's Gospel 
in John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus explained to His disciples, He said this, But when the Helper comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness or testify about Me. Just a chapter later in John's Gospel, in chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. That the Spirit is the one who testifies is undeniable. He testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ in and through the written revelation, the Bible, which is the very Word of God. But inwardly, He also illuminates the truth of God's inspired revelation, His Word, in our hearts. The Holy Spirit helps the eyes of our hearts to see in and through God's Word that Jesus is our Savior. So do you see what John is doing here? Do you see how he's building his case for the total truthfulness of the testimony concerning Jesus Christ? John not only points to the objective work of Jesus Christ in history, that He came by water and blood, but he also points to the work of the Spirit who subjectively testifies in our hearts to the truth of Jesus Christ. There is an objective witness to Jesus Christ and there is a subjective witness to the truth of Jesus Christ too. And what John does, and, and what does John say next in verse 8? What does he say about these witnesses? He says, they agree. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now in legal matters, it's bad news for a prosecution if your witnesses do not agree. But if your witnesses agree, then normally you're on your way to establishing the truth beyond any reasonable doubt. And that's what John has done here. John is effectively saying to his readers, look, the water, the blood, and the Spirit all testify, and their testimony agrees. So what's the conclusion that we should draw? The conclusion that we should draw is that the testimony is, is sound. The testimony is totally and completely truthful. And if it is true, then we should believe it. But there's another reason that we should believe the totally truthful testimony of the water, the blood, and the Spirit. At the end of the day, this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. John observes in the first part of verse 9 that we, you know, we willingly accept the testimony of men. But there is one who is greater than all men. And that is the God who made all men. In, in our everyday experience, we accept the testimony of fallen men. In our everyday experience, we accept the testimony from men and women who have not always told the truth. During the course of, of our lives, we've all lied. And yet, that doesn't make us totally unreliable witnesses. We rely on fallen and flawed people every day. We rely on the mechanics that tell us that our brake pads are wearing thin and that we need to change them. But we rely on the doctors who tell us that we have an infection that we can't see. We rely on their testimony. We take it as true. And that's not necessarily wrong. We should change our brake pads. And we should start taking the medicine that the physician prescribes. We rely on the testimony of fallen and flawed men and women. And if we rely on their testimony, how much more should we rely on the testimony of God? How much more should we rely on the testimony of the one true God who has never told a lie because He cannot tell a lie? 
We know that from Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, and Titus chapter 1, verse 2, and Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. They all say that God cannot lie. If we accept the testimony of men, then we should certainly accept the testimony of God. In fact, this threefold testimony of water, blood, and spirit is God's own testimony. What those three witnesses testify to, that Jesus is the Savior, John says, is the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. Brothers and sisters, God speaks truth to us in and through His Word. We, we may not like the truth that He's spoken to us from time to time, but when that happens... The problem is not with His Word. It's with us. We, we can't take the part that we like here and do away with the part that we don't like there. We can't say, I love the Gospels, but let's just stay away from Leviticus. can't do that. We need to bend our lives around God's Word and not God's Word around our lives. And the same holds true for this church. The life and the ministry of this church must be shaped by the true Word of God. Our ministry of correction and encouragement must be rooted in the true Word of God. Children, children, there are, are lots of lies about God floating out there in this world. From the very nice people of other religions who come to the door of your home, to the philosophy teacher who tells you there's no absolute truth, you will certainly hear lies about God in this fallen world. Trust what God says about Himself and His Son. Get to know God through His Word, the Bible. Talk with your parents about how God has revealed Himself in this world and in His Word. And ask your parents how you can discern a lie from a totally truthful testimony about God. That would be a great conversation to have with your parents this afternoon or this evening. Well, John has made clear that this testimony is totally true. It's totally true because it's God's testimony. And since this is God's testimony, it is to be believed, which is what we turn to consider next. Trust the totally truthful testimony. Trust the totally truthful testimony. This is the second point we want to consider. Uh, and, and you'll note, as I read here in just a moment, that we should believe this. We should trust what God has said. And if we do, we will have eternal life. So read 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 to 12 with me. 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The main point that John is trying to communicate here is that the totally truthful testimony is to be trusted. What God has said concerning His Son is to be believed and received in faith. These verses, verses 10 to 12, are an invitation from John to believe the testimony concerning Jesus Christ, to believe that He came by water and blood. It's not enough to recognize that God's testimony is totally truthful. It's not enough to say, you know what? Uh, you've presented a pretty persuasive case here, John. Thanks for sharing that information with me. And then just kind of to go on your merry way. We cannot hear this testimony and walk away unaffected. 
we must be changed by. We must believe the testimony. We must bank our whole lives on the testimony. More than this, we must bank our whole eternity on it. That's what John is saying in these verses. John opens verse 10 with his, one of his typical whoever statements. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The idea is uh, fairly clear. Whoever, anyone, all who believe in the Son of God have the testimony in themselves. Belief, faith, and trust are generally speaking interchangeable terms for John. He wrote his entire gospel with the purpose of seeing sinners come to believe in the Son of God. So toward the end of his gospel in chapter 20 verses 30 and 31, John told us that the purpose for his writing was so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And that statement in John's gospel is clearly congruent with what he says here. But what, it, what does it mean to believe in the Son of God and so have the testimony within us? Well, it simply means to believe the testimony of God, to believe what God has said concerning His Son is true. It means that we believe that Jesus did in fact come by the water and the blood. It means that we believe that Jesus Christ came and that He lived the perfectly righteous life that we have not and that He died a substitutionary, sin-bearing death on the cross for the sins of all of those who have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. It means that we believe that three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead so that we might be declared righteous in God's sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ that's credited to us, we receive that by faith alone. It means that we believe that Jesus has ascended into heaven where He sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for the people of God, for us who believe. It means that we believe that Jesus Christ has given us His Spirit and the love of God in our hearts. It means that we believe that the Son of God is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and to take all of God's people, to take us home to heaven with Him. And to have this testimony within us not only means that we have internalized this truth and shaped our whole lives around it, but that we are united to the Son of God by faith. When we hold on to the message about Jesus and faith, we're holding on to Jesus. We're recognizing that He is our only hope and that we need Him in our lives. John makes clear the importance of believing in Jesus and the message concerning Jesus in the latter half of verse 10. You'll see there. In verse 10, on the one hand, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony of himself. On the other hand, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. See, John is very often a writer who views the world in rather black and white terms. There's no gray for John. So either believe God is telling the truth or you believe that God is lying to you. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and your Savior, then you believe that God is telling the truth. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior, then you believe that God is telling lies. It's either one or the other. There's no in-between for John. The fact of the matter is, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. To persist in unbelief is to continually charge God with falsehood. To persist in unbelief is to continually charge God with falsehood. As long as you do not believe, you are continuing to positively call God a liar. Now, I don't know uh, what calling someone a liar has done to your relationships with others. 
but I'm guessing that your relationship turns pretty cold pretty quickly. Uh, and I'm guessing that as long as the charge of falsehood remains active, the relationship is pretty icy. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a, a follower of Jesus, if you have not believed what God has said about His Son in the Bible, then the truth is, is that you're making God out to be a liar. And I'm guessing that you may have never thought about your relationship to God in that way. You, you may have never thought about your lack of faith as actually a positive, aggressive act which maligns God's holy character by calling Him a liar. But that is exactly what you're doing in your unbelief. And it's what we've all done. Before we've come to faith in God, the Bible makes clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friend, this is the totally truthful testimony that God gives eternal life to those who believe in His Son. And in believing in God's Son, not only do your false accusations against God come to an end, not only do you stop wrongly calling Him a liar, but you also come to possess eternal life. So friend, if you're, you're here this morning, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you today to come to Jesus in faith, to confess that you're a sinner. Confess that you're just like our first parents, Adam and Eve. That we've all lived our own way rather than God's way. You know, God created Adam and Eve and He put them in a beautiful garden. And He said to them that they may eat from every tree in the garden except one. God said they may eat of every tree except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that they eat of it, they would surely die. And Satan, in the form of a serpent, entered into the garden. And do you know what he tempted Adam and Eve to do? He tempted Adam and Eve to believe that God was a liar and that he wasn't telling them the truth. Satan said to Adam and Eve, Oh, you will surely not die. You, you, you won't die. And when Adam and Eve reached for that fruit and ate it, they believed Satan's word over God's word. And in doing so, they made God out to be a liar. In Adam and Eve's sinful actions, they may have call, called God a liar, but they actually proved God true. Because when they sinned against God and ate of that fruit, death entered into the world, just as God had truthfully said. The wages of sin is death. And we have all followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. We have all sinned against God. And because of our sin, we are not just in danger of physical death, but eternal spiritual death. Because we have all sinned against the perfectly holy God, the author of our lives, the one who has the right to express His good authority over them. Because we've sinned against Him, we all stand in danger of being punished for our sins for all eternity in eternal death. This is why we need eternal life. And this is why it's such good news that God has given us a testimony concerning His Son. And this is why it's such good news that His testimony is trustworthy. God has said to us, Sinner, you are in danger of eternal death, but I've acted on your behalf. I have sent my one and only most beloved Son to live the life that you have not lived and cannot live in your own strength. He came by the water. He was baptized, identifying Himself 
as the righteous representative of fallen men and women who would come to Him in faith. He came by the blood. He went to the cross to shed His blood in order to bear the sins and the punishment for all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And He was raised from the grave on the third day so that you might have eternal life. So God says to us in His Word this morning in 1 John, Believe this word of promise concerning my Son, Jesus Christ, and you will have eternal life. Friend, turn from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. The, the consequences for failing to believe are all too clear and all too unbearable. For John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Friend, if, if you do not believe, then you are a dead man or a dead woman walking. You came in here today calling God a liar by your unbelief. But I want to urge you to leave here today proclaiming that God has spoken the truth by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what it means to have eternal life in and through Jesus Christ, then please do find me at the door at the back after the service. There's, there's nothing more important that you can think about and talk about today than the trustworthy testimony that God has given to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, we should conclude. I began this sermon by asserting that some things should never change. The, the brothers and sisters in Christ who began the ministry of this church some 85 years ago believed the testimony that God gave to us. They believed what God said concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. They staked the whole future of the church upon that totally trustworthy testimony. Colonel Byers, Pastor E.H. Perrier, uh, Mr. Bergdorf, and the, and the others along with them banked the whole future of the church upon the good news of Jesus Christ. And something should never change. By God's grace, we're going to do the same. We're going to bank the future of the ministry of this church on the testimony that God has given us. We're going to bank the ministry of this church on the fact that Jesus was and is our sinless, sympathetic substitute who died for our sins, was raised from the grave, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. The ministry of this church is going to be based upon that unchanging message. The message, the testimony about Jesus will never change. But the funny thing about this message is that it forces us to change. The message will always remain the same. But because of it, we will never remain the same. When we come to hear and believe the totally truthful testimony, we are forever changed. We stop making God out to be a liar. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news remains the same. The proclamation of the good news remains the same. But by God's grace, we never will. Let's pray together.